Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, good morning. Welcome to Harvest again. We're going to look today at Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 34 to 40. Before we um, open up that passage, I want to tell you something. I hope it doesn't disappoint you. I'm not a big fan of professional wrestling. I know some of you might be, but I'm not a big fan. But when, when I was a kid, I was. You know, back in the day, there, there weren't that many things to watch on TV, but we always liked to watch the wrestling matches in our house, and you know, they had all the different ones, and I found an old clip. My favorite wrestlers back in the day were the tag team of George Becker and Johnny Weaver. They're on this card right there. They're who were they? Who were they wrestling? They were they were going against Rip Hawk and Swede Hansen, and there were a lot of tag team wrestling matches. You know the concept of 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 tag team wrestling, right? There's two against two, but there's only one in the ring at a time for each for each team. And then when you're like if you're wrestling and you're ready for your partner to come in and take your place, you have to reach out and you have to tag them. It might look at something like this. Like you might be that desperate person that you need your partner to come in and, and jump. And they would wrestle and, and sometimes they, they would be really, it seemed like just totally about to destroy somebody. And then they would grab the other guy so he could jump in. And it just, it just looked like they were just about dead. And then they'd reach out and tag their partner and it'd come up and the whole thing would change around. You know what I'm talking about, right? It was tag team wrestling. It's like, here we go. One guy reaching out and gets his partner to come in. Now, surprisingly, this has relationship to the sermon. <laughs> it has some strange analogy to what is happening in Matthew chapter 22. So let's set the context before reading the verses. In Matthew chapter 22, the Jewish religious leaders, as they tried to trip up Jesus with difficult questions, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And his Answer was and is life-changing. So here's what was happening. They were tag-teaming against Jesus. The, the Jewish leaders like you would have the Pharisees, and they would ask him a question, and he would answer it. And then they would tag out and tag the Sadducees, and then they would come in, and they would ans- ask him a question, trying to trip him up, and it wouldn't work. And so then they'd tag back, and here comes the Pharisees again. That's, that's what's happening in Matthew chapter 22. The leading religious authorities of the day are trying to question Jesus, trying to test Jesus, trying to make him make a mistake. And they ask him the question, okay, what is the greatest commandment? Let's, let's read Matthew 22, 34 to 40. 
hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus' answer is about loving God and others, and that's what we're going to look at today, loving God and others. So let's, let's dive right in. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, the Sadducees and Pharisees were rival Groups. They didn't, they had some things they believed in common, but there were some things that they believed differently from each other. So the question is, you know, it goes back and forth. The Pharisees had asked him a question and he had answered it. And then the Sadducees asked him a question about marriage and the resurrection and what would happen with multiple marriages. And it was interesting because they didn't even believe in uh, the resurrection, but they were asking Jesus this question. And Jesus answered it in a way that it, it basically silenced them. And so the Pharisees heard about that. And, it, and I wonder, were they happy or were they, were they mad? And I think it might have been a little bit of both. They might have been happy, for instance, because this was their rival group. But there was probably more disappointment and more anger because even though that was a rival Jewish group, Jesus was the real opponent in their mind. And so they heard that and they thought, let's get an expert in the law to ask a question. Now, when you, when you read that, when you think of an expert in the law, don't think attorney like contemporary attorney. We, when we need legal advice, we, we go to an attorney because they're experts in the law today. This man was an expert in the Mosaic Law. He knew all about the Mosaic Law. So when it says he's an expert in the law, that's the law he's an expert in. Now, there is some overlap because the Mosaic Law covered not just what we would call spiritual things, but it also call, it, it applied and spoke to civil things. So there were different laws and different rules and regulation, over 600 of them, and he's asking the question, trying to trip Jesus up. This is not, he's not just interested, he's trying to trip Jesus up. And so he asked the question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? That would not have been an unusual question. The, the rabbis of the day they believed that all the commandments were valid and all of them in one sense had equal weight, but it was fairly common in that culture for them to debate back and forth which commandment is the greatest because they distinguish between light and heavier commands. And so which one is the greatest? Which one sums up all the others? Which one somehow ties them together? So this is what they want to know. Jesus We've debated it, and we debate it all the time, but what do you think? What is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus' answer 
reveals what is important to him. Jesus' answer reveals what is important to him. And that is on your outline sheet. If you're taking notes and if you're following along, there are two things that are revealed as what is most important to Jesus. And the first one is loving God completely. Loving God completely. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now again, the culture, it's first century, and it's a Jewish context. All through the centuries and years, the dedicated Jewish people, every morning and every evening, they would recite what we know to be the Shema. The Shema, that's the word, the first word in the creed, which means here. It came from Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you were a Jewish family, you would say this first thing in the morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Every morning, every evening. And that summarized the Jewish faith. And of course, the creed goes on. We're not going to read all of it out of Deuteronomy, but It instructed them to put these commandments on their heart and they were to teach it to their children and they were to teach it to their children when they they, uh, lie down, when they woke up, when they were walking, when they were in the house or out of the house and they were even to put it on the door post and the gates of their house. This was hugely important in the Jewish faith. Love the Lord your God with everything. And so that's why Jesus points back to that commandment and says that's the first and the greatest. He says, love the Lord your God. Now, what does it mean to love God? The, the word love is maybe one of the most famous words in the whole history of the English language, right? <laughs> but people think a lot of different things when they hear the word love, I'll I'll tell you, it's not just fuzzy, warm feelings. We often think of love as fuzzy, warm feelings. Oh, I love somebody. I just, I have such tenderness in my heart towards them. And that's what we think about. As as human beings, we we can generally tell what somebody loves or who they love by, by what? By their actions, right? By what they talk about by what they think about, by what they spend their time with, by what they spend their money on, right? It's not just what they say, oh, I love so-and-so or I love this thing. They, They prove their love, they demonstrate their love, they express their love. And Jesus gave a really simple way of expressing love to him in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he said to his disciples, if you love me, do you know what he said? Keep my commands. If you love me, obey. Do what I am teaching you to do. So we love God by obeying him, by surrendering to him, by yielding to him, by seeking his will for our life, not our will. 
We're not about ourselves or promoting ourselves or doing just what we want to do, saying what we want to say, going where we want to go. We, loving God is giving God everything. It's, it's, it's obeying him and, and saying, here's our offering. We're offering you our lives. This is what it means. Now he says, love the Lord your God. Notice the Lord your God. <laughs> he's already, these, he's assuming you're already in relationship with him. He's already the covenant God that has loved you first. He's already the God who has made promises to you and brought you into relationship with him. Love the Lord your God. It's personal, but it's also transcendent. It's holy. He is God. Love the Lord your God. So in other words, this call to love God is a response to the fact that he loved us first. We're not going to just love God on our own. In fact, by nature, none of us do seek after God, the, the Bible tells us. But God loved us first, and God initiated relationship with us. And he's saying, love the Lord your God, and how? With all your heart, soul, and mind. Now, sometimes when people are talking about passages like this, they'll They'll, they'll slice it up and go, okay, well, here's what it means to love God with your heart, and here's what it is to love God with your soul, and here's what's your mind, and then he doesn't, he doesn't quote the fourth one, which is strength that was included. I don't believe Jesus is dividing up our personality into components here. I believe Jesus is saying, love God with everything. Love God completely. Love God with all that you are, with everything there is about you. Love the Lord your God. And then he says, he adds in verse 38, this is the first and the greatest commandment. It's the most important commandment. It takes priority over all the rest. In essence, all the other commandments are contained in this one. And they flow out of this one. Love the Lord your God completely. What is important to Jesus? Loving God completely is important to Jesus. The second thing that's important to Jesus is loving others unselfishly. Loving others unselfishly. He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that command was found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The second one is like it. It's similar to it in importance and greatness. These two are linked. They stand together. There is a clear link and relationship between the command to love God, which is vertical, and to love others, which is horizontal. The, the, the second one naturally flows from the first one. Think about the Ten Commandments, for instance. When, when God gave the Ten Commandments to the people in the Old Testament, the first few commandments are all about your relationship with God, right? They're all about what it means to love God. 
Have no other God before me. Don't make a graven image. Don't misuse the Lord's name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the second table of the commandments or the second portion of the 10 commandments, they turn and talk about loving your neighbor, right? Uh, Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal or lie or covet. You're not loving your neighbor, if you lie against about them or if you steal from them or if you commit adultery with them or against them because love is seeking the very best for somebody. And so if you're seeking the very best for somebody, you don't lie about them or you certainly don't murder them or so forth. So the first commandments are loving God first The second group of commandments are loving your neighbor as yourself or unselfishly. What does it mean to love others? Again, don't think warm, fuzzy feeling. Don't think, no offense, don't think Hallmark movies. I'm not against Hallmark movies. They show up in the airwaves in our house. And I love the person who loves those movies. (laughs) And I have been known at times to maybe watch a little bit of them with her. But what does it mean to love? What is real love? Paul the apostle gave us an answer in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love... I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have, what's the next word? I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have I am nothing, I gain nothing. Love is more than a feeling. And he explains that as he continues in 1 Corinthians 13. This shows how it's not a feeling, it's about actions, it's about what we do. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what love does. It acts. You know, there's another entry. I I feel like I have to make so many different qualifications. Here's another qualification. Love is not the same thing as tolerance. We've elevated in our culture, in our society, we've elevated tolerance, I think, higher than truth, right? So that if the thought is, oh, if you love somebody, then you'll tolerate them and everything they stand for and believe and do. And is that the case? Is, does love mean that tolerance is such that anything anybody does is okay? Well, if you're walking down the aisle of the grocery store and somebody's robbing the grocery store and they've got a gun, 
Would we tolerate them shooting people? Would we be willing to speak to somebody the truth? Verse 6 says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. You know, if I really, really love somebody, that means I am willing, if necessary, to speak to them the truth. I am willing to tell them the truth, maybe about what they're doing or not doing or the ways they're acting or whatever. Now, you do it in love, obviously. Paul talks about speaking the truth in love, but let's not water down love to make it mean, oh, uh, well, just whatever everybody does is okay because the greatest example of love is who? Jesus Christ, and he came to die for us, and he would not have done that if, if there wasn't a right and wrong if there wasn't a sin issue, if there wasn't a separation from us uh, from God. So love is not what our culture calls tolerance, even though loving people are tolerant in a godly biblical way. He says, love your neighbor, back in the passage, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's another qualification. He's not commanding you to love yourself here. I've heard people comment on this passage and say, well, see, here's your command to love yourself. He's just assuming that you love yourself. He's assuming that you take care of yourself. When you're a baby and you're hungry, what do you do? (laughs) You cry and people come to your rescue because the world is about you. At least that's the way we're taught and trained. And we take care of ourselves and we grow up. People rush to meet our needs, but then we're able to start meeting our own needs. And so when we're hungry, we get ourselves food. And when we're sleepy, we rest and so forth. Now, again, this is assuming a basic, it is true that there are, there, there are people in situations who need to really work on a good self-image and things like that. But, but but that's not the command here. He's just, he's just assuming that people in general are going to take care of themselves. Not many people have to be taught to take care of themselves. Most of us, when we're hungry, we're going to try to find food, for instance, somehow in some way. But we're not naturally going to go do that for others. We're going to put our needs first. We're going to think about what we want. We're going to think about what we need We're going to think about ourselves. And so that's why he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It means unselfishly. It is probably natural for humans to love others a little bit less than yourselves. Or maybe in some cases a lot less than yourselves. (laughs) But if we love others, we'll only want what is best for them. That's, That's what I think this means here. So if I'm going to love my neighbor, and, and we, have a, we have to have a broad, expansive definition of neighbor, the Israelites to begin with, in Leviticus, they would have thought that was the fellow Jew, right? But Jesus, when he told the story of the Good Samaritans, uh, the uh, so-called Good Samaritan, when the Jewish man was beaten up, and different people passed by. The one who loved him was the Samaritan. And Jesus asked him the question, which one was the neighbor? And it was the Samaritan. In other words, your neighbor's anybody in need, anybody. 
whether they look like you, whether they have the same color of skin as you have or the same religion that you are. You love everybody. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that look like? Rather than giving you a a list that might be conceived to be a new law or something, I'm I'm going to give you two letters. I'm going to read portions of two letters and let you just see these glimpses of a way not to love and a way to love. So here's the first letter to the neighbor. Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. And when your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I am writing this letter to you to tell you that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob. Maybe that's not what Jesus has in mind about your neighbor. On the other hand, Terry Muck told the story of two neighbors. One man was a Christian, and his neighbor had no interest in spiritual matters at all. And unfortunately, the man who had no interest in spiritual matters his wife became ill with cancer and she died. Three months later, and here's a part of the letter that this man wrote to his neighbor who was the Christian. He said, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. And when the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A religion that can produce the kind of caring and love that my neighbor showed me is something I want to find more out about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. Love God completely and love your neighbor unselfishly. Where does this love Originate. I've, I've already alluded to it, but 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Let, let's not rush past that. <laughs> let's not rush past that. We love because he first loved us. I want to say it again. We try to say it every week in some way. God loves you. Whether you're here in person, you're listening to our live stream, watching our live stream, God loves you. God cared about you so much that he was willing for his own son, Jesus, who was perfect and knew no sin, 
knowing that we were separated from him by our wrong and by our sin and destined for an eternity in hell, separated from God, he loved us so much that he said, you know what, I'll take their place. I'll die in their place because sin has to be paid for. Sacrifice has to be made. And Jesus said, I'll do it and be it. We love him now. Why? Because he first loved us. He died on the cross and he died for you. So if today you've never opened your heart and life to him and said, here I am, I receive your love. I take you as my savior. Please do that today and begin this relationship of love with him. We love because he first loved us. And he continues, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. It's vertical and it's horizontal. We love God completely. We love our neighbors unselfishly. Now, if prejudice or hatred or even indifference causes us to look or act towards people that are different from us, a different race or gender or religion, how can we really say that we really love God? Now, let me ask this question. Why is this important for us right now? This is always important, right? Jesus said it's the first and the greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. But at harvest right now, why is it important for us to focus? Why are we having this sermon today? We just finished a series in the Psalms. We're about to start a new series next week. Why why is it important? I want to give you two reasons why it is important. But it starts, the answer comes in verse 40. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. It's it's like a door. I I just had to replace my basement door. We've been in our house about 18 years, and through the years, water was dripping off over the gutter and hitting the cement and splattering up against the door and didn't even realize that it was eroding the base of the door and a little bit on the frame, so we had to do you know, replace the door, replace some of the laminate, blah, blah, blah. And my son did the replacement. He and I carried the door down. It was a big, heavy door. And the door was great, but the door wouldn't operate without the hinges. (laughs) All right? The door had to get on the hinges. You hang the door on the hinges. And the hinges are what the door depends on to operate. And, and much like that, Jesus says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So everything in the Old Testament, now there was law, prophet, writings, there were three. Jesus wasn't eliminating writings, this was just shorthand, is basically saying all the scripture, everything about obeying God and loving God, everything comes down to these two. And it's important Because number one, it's the key to unlocking the meaning of the minor prophets. The minor prophets are the last 12 prophets in the Old Testament. They're not called minor prophets 
because they're less important than the major, so-called major prophets, it's only because they're shorter. So beginning in Hosea and going all the way to Malachi, there are 12 minor prophets. Next Sunday, we're starting a three-month series called Minor Prophets, Major Impact. And there are these booklets and guides for you on your way out if you wanna, if you wanna prepare through the week and be ready for it. The, the, in the Minor Prophets, there's a, there's a lot of material. And it's going to be a challenge. We're going to cover one per week. So we're going to have to hit it at a really high level. But as we cover that prophet, and there's just many calls about sin and about wrong and about being distant from God and a call for repentance and holiness and social justice in, in a biblical, godly way, there's all kind of calls in the Minor Prophets and think about what Jesus said. I'm just give you the short version ahead of time. All the law and prophets hang on these two. So as you are reading and studying the minor prophets over the next three months, that's one of the reasons why we're, it's important for us to focus on Jesus' command today. Love God and love your neighbor. The second reason that it's important relates to our vision and our strategy and our actions as a church. Now, often at this time of the year, we come into the fall, we'll often use this time to remind people about what we're about as Harvest. What is our vision? What are we trying to accomplish? What is our strategy? What are, how are we going to try to accomplish that? And then what actions do we take in, involved with that? And I, w- I want to talk about those for a minute, and then I want to time in with the passage that we're looking at today. So here's our vision. Our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. We don't always say it, but we probably should for God's glory. It helps remind us what we're trying to do or why we're trying to do it. We're trying to do it for God's glory. We're trying to make disciples who make disciples. And it's not really our vision. We say it's our vision, but it's Jesus' vision for the church. It's the last thing that he said to his disciples after he had died and was buried and rose again and was about to ascend to heaven. He gathered them together in the mountain where he had appointed them in Matthew chapter 28. And he said to them, look, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples of all nations. I want you to teach everything I've taught them, teach them to observe it. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be with you everywhere. In other words, Go make disciples who will not just stop themselves, but they will make other disciples. Teach them to observe everything I've taught you. I've invested in you. I've been making disciples of you. I want you to make disciples of others who will make disciples of others. Now, who needs to be made into a disciple? Anybody and everybody who is not following Jesus Christ with their whole heart, soul, and mind. That's who needs to be discipled. And so we start with people that aren't believers. They aren't Christians. They don't know Jesus personally. And the beginning of our disciple-making starts as we love those people and we share with those people, and hopefully God brings them to the point of salvation. It's the beginning of their discipleship. It's the beginning of their following Jesus. And then we want them to grow and develop as followers of Jesus, so that as they're growing and developing, God can use them to develop 
other disciples. So our vision is not to have a church where you come in and you just enjoy things and you kind of sit and soak. And you think, well, well, that was a good service. Or I enjoyed my Bible study. Or I enjoyed my community group. I, I feel like I'm a better person I've learned. And hopefully all those things will be true. But hopefully it's giving to you so that you turn and give to others, whether it's your children, your neighbors, people in your neighborhood, people in your already established group or creating some new group. It's you are designed to become a disciple who will make disciples of others. Does that make sense? That's our vision. That's what we're wanting to do. Think about human development. A baby is born, and it's great, and it's wonderful, and new life comes. And what do we start doing? We care for them. We feed them. We make sure they get the right nutrition. They get their sleep, and they grow as they grow. We keep doing that. We teach them. We educate them. We teach them how to take care of themselves and to exercise. So they're growing. They're developing, and they're leaving the baby stage, and they're becoming a child, and then they leave the child stage and they become an adolescent, a teenager, and then they become an adult. And then guess what? They reproduce the cycle. (laughs) They themselves are able and mature enough to be used by God to raise up other children. And what happens physically is what God wants for you spiritually. He wants you to come to life in Christ first, to grow and then to become a reproducer. And that relates to our strategy. Because our strategy <clears throat> is not something separate or different or more important than our vision. It's, it's the way we try to accomplish that vision. How do we make disciples who make disciples? And our strategy is summarized in three words, live, grow, go. And you can see on the screen, we want people to live in relationship with Jesus. We want them to grow in him, and then we want them to go make disciples. That's, that's how we're making disciples who make disciples. First, we're wanting people to live in relationship with Jesus. We want people who don't have spiritual life yet to be touched by God and to come to that point. And then we want them to grow. In Christ, and then we want them to go. Go make more disciples. Now, here's what's key about all of this. Let me put two other words up on the screen, and that's people and ministries. So, in our vision and in our strategy, specifically in our strategy as we're trying to accomplish it, how do we do that? It, it depends on people and it depends on ministries. It's, it's both. It's not one or the other. It's not only all ministries or only all people. What do I mean? So friend, let me just give you a couple of examples. Just, and this is not all that's happening at Harvest, but just so you can see the difference. Let's think about live. Let's think about wanting people to come to Christ. Well, what do people do? What do you do? If you're a believer and you're a regular part of this church, what do you do to help people come to Christ? You live in relationship with other people. You get to know them. You do what we call relational evangelism. You love them. You encourage them. You're the kind of neighbor that I read that letter about, that you're there for them. And you're not just, 
You're not just sharing lawnmowers and tips and this and that and the other, but, but you're really loving and you're being there and you're, you're looking for at the right time opportunities to share Christ verbally. So you're sharing Christ with your life and with your words. People do that. But then we also have ministries that focus on bringing people to life in Christ. For instance, this summer, a few weeks ago, we had Vacation Bible School. One of the primary purposes of Vacation Bible School was to open up our facilities and our hearts to many, many children and families in our community that won't normally necessarily come to a church, but but they'll have their kids come and enjoy something like VBS. So people are involved with it and ministries. How about growing? Well, Individual people in our church, there are people in our church that are discipling others. Parents are discipling their kids. Parents are teaching their kids how to be formed like Christ. People are doing some one-on-one or one-on-three or one-on-four. They're having some groups, some like D groups, we call them, discipleship groups. And sometimes people are doing it with children. Sometimes they're doing it with students, middle and high school students. Sometimes they're doing it with adults. That's, that's what people are doing, but ministries are doing it too. We have Bible studies. We have community groups that are mixed between men and women, all different kind of ages, and they're designed to help you grow. We have women's Bible studies. We have men's Bible study. We have prayer times together. We have corporate prayer times together. That's the ministries that we have related to growth. Well, what about go? So we want people to live in Christ. We want them to grow. We want them to then go make disciples. How about Don and Cy Hill, just as an example? They came to Christ through the ministry of harvest. They grew. They developed. They moved to Thailand. So they could make disciples there and start a church there. So sometimes it's people or it's people reaching out to local elementary school, beginning the process of reaching out or uh, maybe sponsoring an orphan in Nigeria. So, So there are many things that people do, but there are ministries like ESL that meets here. English as a second language where we're loving, we have a ministry that loves on people whose first language is not English and we're trying to help them understand English. Why? So they can understand more about the Bible and understand about God and become a follower of Christ themselves. This is our vision. This is our strategy. And you will hear about activities. (laughs) You will be invited. People will invite you. Hey, come join my Bible study. Hey, come join this group. Hey, help me sponsor a child. Help me sponsor a staff member at the school. Hey, would you get involved in this? Would you do this and that and the other? And those are all important. It's all important. But I want you to hear this. Please, please, please hear this today. And if we don't say it every time, because we can't say everything every time, but every time we make an appeal, if we don't say it, Please hear this. The reason why we have this vision. The reason why we have this strategy. The reason why we engage in these activities is to express love for God 
and love for others. So the, the answer on your outline, why this message is important right now, is that it is the motivation for our vision, strategy, and actions. Love for God and others should drive everything. Not duty, not obligation, not even need. We talk about the need at times. And that's legitimate to talk about, but sometimes if people just serve only because there's a need, they really get tired (laughs) eventually. Maybe they get even bitter against others. Like, why can't other people see the need like I see it? You know, because there's, and there's so many needs. Sometimes they get overwhelmed, right? There's, there's so many needs in the world. We, how can we meet all these needs? So that's, that's not the greatest motivation. Here's the greatest motivation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We need to keep those, that motivation in our minds and in our hearts. Here's God's word for us this morning. To Jesus Everything flows from loving God and others. To Jesus, everything flows from loving God and others. When we follow God in all of our life, that flows out of our love for God, and it started with God's love for us, and that enables us to go love others. After Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were out fishing one day, remember? And Jesus came on the shore. They were out fishing. They hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, hey, put the nets on the other side. Then they caught so many fish they couldn't keep them. And they came back in and they ate and they they sat and ate together. And in John 21, verse 15, when, Jesus, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And what did Jesus say? <laughs> Be warm and fuzzy? No, go feed my lambs. Again, verse 16, Jesus said, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter, in other words, according to Jesus, everything starts with loving him. Everything starts there. 1 John 4, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I don't usually quote Napoleon Bonaparte. (laughs) Don't really usually look to him for great spiritual guidance. But a 
Apparently he said this, Alexander, Caesar, and Hannibal conquered the world, but they had no friends. Jesus founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions would die for him. He has won the hearts of men a task a conqueror cannot do. To Jesus, everything flows from loving God and others. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.